So this morning we're continuing in our sermon series on the fruit of the spirits. And this is something we just started last week, and it's what we're going to be continuing uh, for the rest of Easter and Pentecost. As like we have mentioned that today is Mother's Day, so there is in many ways like a calendar that governs our lives. It could be the school calendar that school, uh, finals are this week for many of the students, for all, I think all the students at Westchester. And so there's the school calendar, there's the quote-unquote Hallmark calendar. There's also this, this thing called the church calendar, and Easter is this beautiful season, then Pentecost, and Pentecost is on June 5th. And so for these seasons of Easter and Pentecost, we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're now going to be looking at each one of these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And today we're looking at love. And you can um, open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at um, love, starting and having our starting point beginning in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. You can follow along in your worship guide or on the wall behind me. But there's also something new that we're going to be doing for this sermon series. There is, are going to be an an outline for each one of these sermons inside your worship guide. And so there'll be more space to write down some thoughts, comments, but we're also going to be bouncing around within our Bibles, looking at different passages of Scripture, seeing, seeking to see, have Scripture speak more deeply to us as we consider each one of these fruit of the Spirit. So again, this is Galatians 5, 13, and 14. Let's give our careful attention to this book that we love. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, how the, your word can be summed up in love. So be with us now as we consider what this means for our life, that we would seek to be full of your spirit, that we would seek to be full of your love. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. What is love anyway? That's a song. It's a great question. And as we think about songs, just in general, they, they ask a lot of great questions, and this is one of the best questions. What is love, anyway? What is love, anyway? And in a word, it's everything. As we just read here in Paul, in Galatians 5, the entire law can be summed up within a word, to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you could actually summarize what it means to follow the way of Jesus, if you can put, put it in one word or one sentence into one thought, one idea, Paul answers that question for us. It would be love. For the Christian faith, love is everything in the Christian faith. So I'm going to tell you a story about two friends of mine back in Pittsburgh. One woman, her name is Olga, and another woman, her name is Luda. Olga is from Russia. Luda is from Ukraine. And so right now, their countries are at war with one another. And they talk about this on Facebook 
quite a bit. And so the world would actually say that they should be enemies, but yet they're actually deep friends who, with one another. They're deep friends because they're actually united in Christ. They are, they are Christian sisters. But this unity that they have that of being to, united in Christ does actually not discount or dismiss or ignore the pain of the war going on in Ukraine. It actually helps and deepens solidarity. So Luda may post stories of her home where we, you see bombed out buildings and more, and Olga will simply say, I'm praying for you, dear, dear sister. Such love should define the church because such love is actually from the Spirit. There was commentator D.A. Carson who wrote that the church, it, sh- it should be full of people who would naturally be enemies with one another, but they're actually friends with one another. If you look at Jesus' own disciples, you'll see Simon the Zealot, and Zealots were those who would rebel against Rome. They would seek to organize insurrection against Rome. And then, so he's sitting on one side of the table, and then on the other side of the table was Matthew the tax collector, who would actually lie, cheat, and extort people for money and give some of that money to Rome. That's what is his job. Now imagine those dinner conversations. And they are sitting around the same table around Jesus. And then we see this picture even in the rest of the New Testament of Jews sitting with Gentiles. And that's where Romans 2.11 comes in, that God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. So what is love anyway? What does love got to do, do with it? Everything. Everything. One could have all the talent and success in the world, but if they do not have love, they are nothing. One could have all the right theological answers, but if they do not have love, then they are nothing. And one could be the most generous person that, whom you know, but if they do not have love, then they are nothing. That last thought, all that is actually 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through, 13, 1 through 3, but that last thought kind of blows my mind in a sense. A person can give away all that they have and yet not love. Think about that. We'll kind of talk about that in a few moments. So our outline for this morning is, is in your, our, our worship guides. But we're going to be thinking about defining love, faking love, and cultivating love. Defining love. So what is love anyway? And here's why the question of definition matters, because we cannot cultivate love, we can't grow in love if we don't know what it is. Just stating the obvious. And there's a challenge when it comes to defining love, because Scripture never defines love in the way that we think about definitions. Like when we think about definitions, we think of a very precise definition, a very logical, rational one. But what God does with love is that he never defines it. Instead, God describes it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. Love does not envy. And see, God describes it, but then he even takes it further. He takes it further because he actually shows us what love is. He embodies it for himself, and then he embodies it himself, and then he tells us about it. And so what we'll see in like 
here in all of Scripture, and specifically even in 1 John, we see that God is love. And then that we see Jesus talking about that greater love, there is no greater love than this, than he who would lay down his life for his friends. See, when we think about love, God never defines it, but he describes it, and he lives it for us. And this has actually always been the case throughout all of Scripture. See, when Paul here in Galatians 5 says, love your neighbor as yourself, Paul is actually quoting this obscure book, Leviticus. And it's Leviticus 19 where we, we read, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just Paul who quotes that, it's Jesus who quotes that as well. See, when Jesus has a conversation with a Jesus has this one conversation, and he, in this conversation, asks, what is the greatest commandment? And the answer to that is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Deuteronomy 6. And what's the second greatest commandment? Well, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Paul says that the entire law, law can be summed up, these two ideas, these two commands are unified over and over again, all of Scripture builds upon this ethic of love. So when we think about this question here of, when we think about this command here of love your neighbor as yourself, just ask the simple question, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Jesus answers this question with a parable that was actually a well-known story. Jesus retold an ancient story, as it were. Because Jesus is, is in this moment telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the story I'm, that I'm thinking of. And it's a twist. He retells it. But the story goes, as it would originally went, that a man was traveling and he was beaten, he was robbed, he was beaten, and he was left for dead on the side of the road. And then various faithful Jews would walk by, a priest, a Levite, a scribe. They would walk by. But would I, any of them do anything? No, they wouldn't. And in the original story, it was a Babylonian who would walk by. And the original time period for the story was shortly after Jerusalem was conquered and defeated by the Babylonians. And so would the Babylonian, the, the enemy of God's people, help this beaten Jew? Everyone who would hear that question would be like, absolutely not. But in the story, it was yes. And Jesus retells a story, but instead of having to be a Babylonian, it is a Samaritan. Because in his day, in his context, in his culture, the Samaritans were despised. They were looked down upon. If you look at John 4, it was a scandal for Jesus to associate with the Samaritan woman at the well. It, because they are just so looked down upon. And so Jesus is pointing out the, and asking, he's pointing out what love really is. By, by how it's just being described in that parable. And so he asked the question, who actually loved their neighbor? And it was the Samaritan. See, the, the, when we think about who is our neighbor, our neighbors are every single person whom we meet and has, have needs within their lives. Because to love your neighbor is actually to see another person, to see their need, and to respond to that need. That's spelled out at length in Leviticus 19. That's spelled out for us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when we look at the Gospels, when we look at 1 John 4, 
when we look at what John is telling us in, in his gospel in First John, that's what God does. God looks at our lives. He sees our need, which is our spiritual bankruptcy, our sinfulness, which separates us from God, how we are alienated from him. And that it's that alienation that results in fear and hatred and much more. And God responds. So we see John 13, that John 15, 13, there is no greater love than this than he who would lay down his life for his friends. And so clearly, Jesus is actually talking about himself here, but he's also giving down an example for us to follow. And this love is rooted in God's love for us. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. See, when we think about love, love is an action. Love is an action. Love is a posture. Love is a service, an inclination, and a commitment, even when you don't feel like it. This is, and like, let's think about, ask any married person, really. Because this is why when two people are in love, when they gather together on their wedding day before their friends and family and loved ones, all those friends and family loved ones actually function as witnesses. And it's why on their wedding day that they make vows to one another because a day will come when those feelings of love will actually go away. Those desires will go away. That spark is gone. See, our love needs to be grounded in something bigger than those feelings, those those desires, or that spark. Our love needs to be grounded in something deeper and bigger than us. And so this is why we actually make vows before God and these witnesses to serve really as guardrails, to protect us and to protect our love, to actually show us what love is, because love, far before it can be defined, needs to be described and lived out. And so we make vows for richer and in poorer, for sickness and in health, till death parts us. We make these vows because love is really described and lived out. And there is the best picture of love is Jesus dying upon the cross. That self-sacrificial service, that emptying of one for another. And so that we're thinking about a definition of what is love. It's also helpful to think also as what's the opposite of love. And this is, I'll just be brief. And when we think about what's the opposite of love, like this is a fun question to think about, and even it's kind of fun from a comp, looking at all these biblical scholars, because they actually are all over the map too. One person will say hatred, one person will say fear, another person will say just indifference. And so when you think about fear for a moment, because it's really not fear, and the, although Jesus strongly rebukes it, and this was coming from, this is, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate someone, you call them raka, you fool, then you have murdered them within your heart. And we, you see an example of that actually in 1 first, in first John 4, and it's Cain murdering his brother Abel. And so John Sanderson, in his book on Fruit of the Spirit, I, this is going to kind of be the book that I, I go to all the time for this series. 
But Sanderson wrote this, that part of our problem is that we have a restricted sense of hatred. We think that hatred must be intense. It needs to be bitter. It needs to be ugly. But actually, it may only be a careless remark, an unthinkable jab thrown out on the spur of the moment. And these are little things, but they are the things which separate, aggravate, and alienate people. Intensity is not the essence of the act of hating. We hate what we do not like. And so like Tim Keller, instead of saying it's a hatred, Tim Keller would actually say it's fear. Where the opposite of love is not hatred, but fear of the other. Where hatred is actually the visible seen fruit of the fear of, of a fearful heart. So this is one reason why John says in John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. The deeper root of hatred is fear. It's a fear of the other. Because when you fear someone, you demonize them. And you call them enemies. You hold grudges. And so it's going to be that fear of others that is the opposite of love. But here's the thing. No one actually mistakes hatred or fear for love. No one does that whatsoever. We, we look at our lives and we really acknowledge that we don't want to be a people that are full of hate or fear of other people. We don't want that. And so in a sense, it's like as you think about hatred and fear, we already know we want to uproot those things from our life and seek to cultivate more of this fruit of love that we're called to. But we can actually mistake, and we do this all the time, we actually mistake a lot of things for love. And this brings us to our second point of feigning or faking love because there are a lot of examples of counterfeit fruits of love, counterfeit fruit of the Spirit, as it were. Because there are many different counterfeit fruit that may seem to be like love. They may look like love. They can even trick you, but they're not. And we have to be able to uh, up identify these things so that we can actually confess them, where we own them, confess them, and repent them, where we uproot them also from our lives. And so Matthew 5, um, which was our call to confession this morning, gives us a brief picture of what one false fruit of fake love is. False fruit of fake love. That's not what I'm saying. False fruit of love is. And one example of fake love, there we go. So Matthew 5, 13, 43 through 46 and 48, just to um, go to it again. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So here's the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is actually pinpointing one example of fake love for us, where we exclusively love people who are exactly like us, where we, are, we love our, our friends, where we show favoritism to people who look exactly like us. And what's happened in this passage and in God's people is that over the years, since God gave that command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19, over the years and since that point, God's people have reinterpreted that commandment. 
They have watered it down in such a way where it's actually lost its distinctiveness. And so the command to love your neighbor turns out and is reinterpreted to be, hey, you shall love your Jewish neighbor. That's it. Or you shall love your next door neighbor and hate your enemy. But that's actually what Jesus is pinpointing for us here. And as he points out, he's pointing out that it's no, we, if you actually follow that, you're actually living no different than those around you, than the world around you. That the, God's people are not being countercultural as they're being called to be. And so just think about our lives, because let's be honest, this is how we tick. Think about the people whom you're closest to. Think about your friends. Think about the, your favorites on your phone. Do you share the same hobbies? Do you share the same food, the same preferences? Like, what are the things that you have in common? And frankly, it's going to be a lot of things. This is how we tick. And Paul points out something for us in 1 Corinthians 13, once again, that one can be generous, give away everything they have, and yet without love, they have nothing. This is, real, like, this is giving us another picture of what fake love is. See, another example of fake love is actually, I'm, I'm blurring the two things, but let me just, in my mind, taking a step back. Sorry about that. Another example of fake love is, is where instead of loving people and giving of yourself is that you're actually loving the experience of people. There's a massive difference between loving people and giving of yourself for the good of others versus loving the experience of, of people. One service and the other is about using another person to feel good. You don't love people, but you love how they make you feel. So go back to that 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. A person can be generous, give everything they have, and yet not have not love, then they are nothing. That there is this reality that we want to be seen as love, loving people. That we want to be celebrated as loving people. And so we may give generously of all that we have. And yet it's empty. It's something that's entirely self-serving. It's something that's entirely self-indulging for ourselves. That's the second example of fake fruit. The third example of fake fruit it continues, and it's somewhat similar, but it confuses love with desire and feeling. And so, again, if you think about any couple going on into their, their wedding day and think about how they're engaged, they will tell you that they are in love, but most of the time, most of the time, their love is not tested by the crucible of suffering. They haven't fought. They haven't hurt or sinned against one another. And so recognizing that those feelings will one day go away, the better question is, what do you do when you don't like the other person? And that's actually where it's just like, like let's break up. Let's move on. And this is why, that, once again, that's why we take wedding vows, but that's getting at a, a problem within our culture that if you when we confuse love with a feeling then it's not actually something to last and, and we see this in, in in our culture in a pretty big way it was in 2019 for example the psychology of music journal which is apparently a thing 
Psychology and Music Journal. They published this study in 2019. And what the study was, it looked at all the top 40 songs from the 19, beginning in the 1960s. So every single year, looking at the top songs, of the top 40 songs of, of that year. And across the board, 73% of all those songs were about love. But if you actually looked at the content and the lyrics of the songs beginning in 1960, you'll see a shift, a change in an understanding of those songs, a change in understanding of what love is reflected in those songs. So that you'll see that in the 1960s, that love is going to be about romance, about the other person. But whereas today, these songs are not about the loving another person. It's actually going to be very self-indulgent. As one friend put it about, love is about me getting it on for me. That's this understanding of love that we live in, that love is not a service, but love is actually about self-gratification and sexual fulfillment. So when we think about our world and that we live in, we think about our lives, these are all examples of fake love. Some are more obvious, some are more insidious, to, and they're more, but than others. The, one, the, the obvious ones are, like, are the ones that we can, hey, these are what we need to remove from our lives, but the ones that are far more obscure are actually the insidious ones because they can deceive us very clearly. And so these, fake, these examples of fake fruit are things that we need to uproot from our lives as we seek to grow and cultivate love. So this is our third point of cultivating love. First uh, John 4, I want to read 8 and 9, then jump into 18 and 19. And what we find John saying in this short letter is this, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And then jumping ahead to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And so when we think right here, we see this wonderful picture that God himself is love. That God is the source of love. That he has sent his son to rescue you from your sin so that you would have life with him. But also so that his love would be made manifest in you. And so if we're going to grow in love as we're commanded to, we need to recognize some very clear lessons from these verses that you can only love God because God first loved you. That we love only because God first loved us. God has loved you in that scene in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die upon the cross so that your punishment for your sin is paid for. And this is not an instance of God the Father versus God the Son. No, not, not in any way, shape, or form. This, that's actually this beautiful instance of God the Father and God the, the, the Son united in love for you. 
They are united in love for you. And so Jesus gladly, happily, rejoicing, goes to the cross to die upon the cross for your sins because he loves you. He gladly does that. And so if you're going to grow in love, not only do we need to recognize that we love because God has first loved us, if we're going to grow in love, then we need to grasp the fact that each and every single one of us deserved that punishment that Jesus paid the price for. Each and every single one of us deserved to die upon the cross. That's not something... Jesus dying upon the cross for our sins is not something we're entitled to. And this is a simple point that we need to have humble hearts. When we have these humble hearts, when we have that humility, we'll we'll bring gratitude. And that's when love grows. That's when love grows, grows. And so this is something where we need to look to Jesus in faith. That we look to Jesus in faith, leaning on him, trusting upon him because he died upon the cross for us. So going back to that, those three words in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Do you look to God as the source of love? Do you look to God as the source of love? Do you look at God and think God is love embodied, that God is love his, he, he is loving, and I, he is steadfast, he is faithful because he is loving? Do you go to God and like just meditate and admire his character? In Psalm 136, which was our call to worship, seriously, take some time to read it because that is a very long psalm, and what that's, the psalmist is doing is that he is remembering everything that God has done for his people of Israel. And the second half of every verse is his steadfast love endures forever. When you think about God's work in space and time and history written in his word, when you think about God's work in your own life, does the refrain, his steadfast love endures forever, come to your mind? Because God loves you and he is faithful to you because he loves you. Do you stop and meditate upon God being the source of love? And so this may, be, this may seem basic. This may seem elementary. Because what I'm telling you, when I, what God's word tells us to do is to go and look at the gospel. That God is love and he sent his son to die upon the cross for you. And this is something important for us to recognize. And the author Tim Keller put it this way, that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A through Z. It's the entirety. It's the sum of the Christian faith. This is everything. And so something else to realize here is that you and I, we're all meant to grow in love. But only God can truly help you to be more loving because he is love. You cannot grow in love without him. You cannot grow in love without him. You cannot grow in love unless you come to him, look to him in faith and lean on him. So to kind of like wrap this up, Anne Rice once wrote that Christians have lost all credibility on how to love. And that is a damning indictment of the church that we need to take seriously. But something else to to just to recognize, because within our cultural moments, many people look at the church and says, you haven't you don't know what it means to love. 
But let's look at what really happened in history. Now, here's Jesus Christ, who is lo- the embodiment of love. And how did the world respond to him? The world responded to embodied love, perfect love, and crucified him upon the cross. This is just something to point out that our world actually does not understand what it means to love. God does. And God calls us to grow in this love. And that's something that we can only do by looking to him. But when we do do so, our life changes. Our witness changes. So here's Christopher Wright. And I want to end with Christopher Wright. And this is in the quote of Reflection in Your Worship Guide. But this is what Christopher Wright says. Our love for one another makes visible the love of God, which is another way of saying that God himself is seen since God is love. When Christians love each other in practical, sacrificial, costly, barrier-dissolving ways, then the love of God, or rather the God who loves, who is love, can be seen the world should be able to look at Christians and how they live together and love together and see something of their reality of God being demonstrated. That through the church, the world should be able to see God in action. That when we grow in love, the world will see the truth that God is love. So friends, let's grow in love. Let's pray.